Coming up today, Matt delves into the failed promise of antibody tests, Amit explains how to eat lots of hot dogs, and Vicky reminds us all what a train is. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Amit Kawala. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Vicky Turk. Hi. This was the week when BT and Vodafone warned that UK customers could face mobile phone signal blackouts if they are only given three years to strip Huawei's equipment from their 5G networks. Executives told MPs they would need at least five years, and ideally seven, if, as expected, the government announces curbs on the Chinese firm in the coming weeks. This was also the week when the US government said it was considering banning TikTok owing to its links to China. Last week, India banned the social media app and other Chinese apps and services, following increased tensions between the two countries. And it was also the week when scientists found DNA evidence that suggests that Indigenous Americans and Polynesians met way back in the year 1200 AD. The Pacific Islands of Polynesia were one of the last places on Earth to be settled by humans, but this new DNA evidence suggests that they also travelled the thousand kilometres to South America, or that Indigenous Americans made the trip to Polynesia. It helps to explain why Polynesians have long-farmed sweet potatoes, despite the crop being native to the Americas. And finally, it was the week when UK Chancellor Rishi Sunak announced his plans to help businesses recover from the coronavirus, including cuts to stamp duty for home buyers, a £1,000 bonus for companies taking staff off furlough, and £10 off sit-down meals from Monday to Wednesday in August. Rishi Sunak's weekday meal deals. It's an incredible announcement, one that's been met with both uh, alarm and dismay. And it seems like he couldn't even get approval. They had to force it through um, because it's seen as something that isn't going to make any money or have any benefit. I just think it's very, it's just a very amusing thing for the government. I know this is a horrible situation that we're all in, but I just think six months ago, if you'd said that the government would be paying for your <laughs> Nando's extra halloumi and olives, you know, you, those people would have looked at you like you were mad. But here we are. Here we are. It's a very, very strange world that we live in. Uh, What did we learn this week? Matt Reynolds, let's start with you. So I learned that in 2016, 37,500 people were killed in car accidents in the USA. But the real fact is that back in the 1920s, road deaths were seen as so unusual and crucially unavoidably, uh, sorry, avoidably tragic, that cities such as St. Louis and Pittsburgh erected monuments to child victims of traffic accidents, just like the monuments to those killed in World War One. Are you reading a book about the history of the car? Uh, is this because you're also referring to my horsey, horseless fact from a couple of weeks ago? Mm. I'm, I'm not, but I'm, I may maybe piecing one together to write one, perhaps. <laughs> Maybe you should. Vicky, what did you learn this week? I learned that almonds are not a nut. They are a fruit, or at least fruit seeds. So the almond tree comes from the same family as peaches, cherries and plums, the prunus family. And almonds are technically not nuts because they have a fleshy hull. They basically are kind of a bit like a peach. They've got like a fleshy bit on the outside, which we take off. 
Um, and then you've got the um, sort of hard case and the seed inside, which we eat, are called a nut. Uh, other nuts like pistachios and walnuts also aren't technically nuts. Incredible. And did you know that peanut butter is neither nut nor butter? Well, there you have it. It's, Everything's it's a lie. Bean paste, basically. Uh, more shocking nut news next week, perhaps. Uh, Amit, what did you learn this week? Wait, so so peanuts aren't nuts either? Is that what you're saying? No, they're they're, they're legumes. They're beans. So, so what are nuts? If, if pistachios, walnuts, <laughs> peanuts, and almonds are not nuts, what are nuts? Brazil nuts are nuts. Actually, I know an acorn is a nut. <laughs> Uh, but obviously in the culinary sense we would still call them nuts and you know if you had a nut allergy you would still have to avoid these non-nuts um but yes in the strict sort of uh uh horticultural sense i suppose they are not if anyone else has great nut facts to blow amit's mind podcast.wired.co.uk amit you don't have I, a nut fact, but I, you have no, a fact. No, I have a, uh, an historical fact. So uh, did you know that world-famous engineer Isambard Kingdom Brunel once had a gold coin stuck in his throat for six weeks? He accidentally swallowed it while performing a magic trick for some children, and the saga of the coin in Brunel's throat became a kind of national sensation. Uh, doctors tried to remove it surgically but couldn't, and eventually it got dislodged with the help of a special contraption that Brunel helped design that suspended it upside down and kind of swung him from the ceiling. of course it's an ingenious solution to a very very unusual problem uh i suppose that there isn't any kind of documentary evidence of that other than written accounts yeah there's like stuff in medical journals that was covered in the papers at the time um the 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 news broke uh at the athenium uh club in london because someone burst into the room and shouted it's out and everyone already knew that what they were talking about without them having to specify because it was such a big story (laughs) at the time I love facts with follow-up facts. That is just tremendous. Uh, I learnt slightly more prosaically that um, in 2010, a man called Gregory McCon was kicked off a flight from Baltimore to Frankfurt for falling asleep with his eyes open. So um, Gregory suffers from a condition, or suffers. Gregory has a condition known as nocturnal lagatholomalus, which is a rare, but um, it basically means that you tend to fall asleep with your eyes wide open. So he pressed the flight attendant button when he got on the flight short and shortly after boarding. But before takeoff, a member of the cabin crew responds to the call, sees him lying there looking a bit dead, tries to wake him up, takes a while, and he kind of comes around and goes, yes, um, no, I'm fine, thank you, no need for any help. But the flight attendant was so alarmed by his apparent deadness um, that she asked everyone to get off the plane and ordered medical assistance. Um, the guy desperately tried to explain that he had this condition, uh, but it, uh, it didn't do any good. There we go. Podcast at wired.co.uk with any of your facts that you'd like to share. We had a couple in this week, um, which for some reason no one picked up, which is kind of rude of us. Never mind. Uh, our first story this week, Matt Reynolds, is about antibodies. Absolutely. So I'm not sure if any of you are missing the government's daily coronavirus press briefings, but I know that in the initial months of the coronavirus pandemic, I was tuning in eagerly almost every single day. And I'm sure it won't have escaped anyone's attention who was watching these briefings at the time or following the news coverage that came out of them. The government seemed to be pinning a lot of hope on a game-changing test that could tell who had had COVID-19 in the past. So I'm talking about 
antibody tests, of course. And you might remember that back in April, Health Secretary Matt Hancock first floated the idea that antibody tests would allow us to create immunity passports. Yeah, this kind of idea that if you'd had the disease, you might be able to go back to your job on the assumption that you were immune. Um, or, you know, maybe you'd be able to travel or something like that. And that same month, Boris Johnson was positive that we'd had a shipment or we were about to have a shipment of Chinese antibody tests that would be an absolute game changer and he said would be as easy as doing a pregnancy test. Now the reason I go for a little walk down memory lane is you might have noticed that not a lot of these things have come to pass. So we've got the antibody tests but they haven't really delivered the promise that we were once told they would hold. What's the problem here? Because you you can do antibody tests, right? Like I I know people that have kind of bought them uh, off the kind of private market uh, and kind of done them. But so what's the problem with doing that? Why can't they scale that? Why isn't the government providing that as a service to get us kind of back, you know, mingling quicker? Yeah, so that at-home antibody test is actually a really, really good example of how things kind of went wrong. So usually, so so actually at the moment, you can take a private uh, antibody test if you go to a clinic and get someone to take a blood sample from your vein. So it would need to be done by a phlebotomist or you know someone trained to take blood samples. But in mid-May, after the government procured uh, millions of pounds worth of antibody tests, from uh, mainly from two firms called Roche and Abbott, Basically, these antibody tests, um, you know, they flooded high street pharmacies. So they were in Lloyd's, uh, Babylon Health was selling them. They were sold through Boots. They were sold all over the internet. And they were basically offering people antibody tests based on finger prick blood samples. And I'm sure lots of people, you know, saw this. Loads of people took these tests, right? You you lance the tip of your finger or the tip of a couple of fingers. You kind of milk the blood out, put that in a little tube, send it away. And they'll run one of these antibody tests and tell you whether or not you have the antibodies against coronavirus. Now, what anyone that bought these tests will know, especially if they bought them towards the end of May, you know, in the kind of you know week or so after they were first announced, is that this whole scheme derailed very, very quickly. So on May 26th, the Medicine and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, MRHA, asked companies to stop selling antibody tests using these finger brick finger prick blood samples as the tests had only been validated using blood taken directly from veins. So all of those tests that people had and you know there was you know, thousands of thousands of people I've had took or ordered these tests, they were essentially ruled completely useless. You couldn't trust those uh, tests at all. And that is only really one example of how the UK's kind of slightly strange approach to antibody tests has led to problems further down the line. So what else went wrong? Because as you say, Matt, this was like held up as like one of the core things that was going to get us back on track. And everyone was freaking out about this idea of immunity passports. And gosh, would it be ethical to do that? But it seems like we never even really had the option to consider it seriously. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's two things that went on. This is this was, it was almost like a perfect storm of raising expectations while simultaneously under-delivering the actual product in the end. Part of the reason we're really in this situation is because we weren't testing, doing normal tests um, for COVID-19 when we had the opportunity. I realise this is so boring, right? This is always the answer. It seems to be whenever something goes wrong with the UK's coronavirus response, everyone's like, we weren't testing enough. But funnily enough, the problem with antibody tests all goes back to normal testing 
early on. So it wasn't until May 19th that the UK government opened up testing criteria so that anyone aged over five with coronavirus symptoms could have a test. So before then, swab tests, and remember, those are the tests that test for the presence of the virus, but can't tell you if you've had it in the past. So a swab test can only tell you if you have the virus right now. Those swab tests were restricted at first to those in medical settings and then to key workers, their families and other groups. So you remember all that advice at the time in mid-March and then through April as well. If you've got symptoms of the virus, stay at home, self-isolate, don't take a test because there's no point. It makes no difference to what you're doing, right? We have no track and trace. That was, that was the whole kind of communication around it. But at the same time, as you had these tens of thousands of people that were left unable to know whether their symptoms really were caused by COVID-19 or not. And in essence, what you're doing there is you're creating this great big inbuilt market, aren't you? Because you're saying all these people that would want to know this information in the past, um, in the future, sorry, they can't access it right now. They're people that potentially will want to get an antibody test at a later point. So why you've got this huge kind of growing uh, group of people, the UK government was starting to suggest that actually it'd be a pretty good idea whether you knew if you had the disease in the past or not. So on April the 2nd, uh, Matt Hancock uh, said that the government was looking at immunity certificates, uh, saying that people who had had the disease have got antibodies and they might have immunity to show uh, that, you know, that they might have immunity and they can prove it and they can therefore get back to the normal life as much as possible. So at the same time as no one gets these tests, the government was also saying, oh, kind of would be a good idea if we had these tests that could tell you if you'd had the disease, because we might be putting in place policies that really depend on you knowing that. Okay, that was on April 2nd. It's when we're recording this, it's July 9th. So with the benefit of hindsight, none of that happened. And a lot of what went wrong here seems to be the result of poor planning and making stuff up as you go along. Countries that have dealt with this crisis well had clear plans in place. They had good stockpiles of the equipment that they'd need to get through it. And an awful lot of what you're saying here just reeks of we don't have a plan. We have to do a daily press conference. We're going to have to basically make numbers up in order to seem like we're doing well. Yeah, I think what is most remarkable about this whole antibody story is just how avoidable it all was because you know in early March obviously people would have liked you know or in mid-March people would have liked to know when the end of the lockdown is but I think that you don't do that by saying hey, there's, we've heard about this immunity passport thing and maybe we'll kind of try that. Bearing in mind that at the time, that whole immunity passport idea, that, that was really just because there was a conversation with some German researchers that were doing a kind of a wide-scale antibody testing and they were saying, maybe if we find out about immunity, this might kind of um, you know, help us make decisions. You know, the, the, the German government wasn't planning it at the time, but the UK government you know, very much picked up on it. And I think it's really, really worth saying that actually we're talking about antibody tests, right? All they can do is tell you whether you had the disease in the past or not. An immunity passport, and I, I, don't, I kind of don't want to relitigate the whole uh, immunity passport thing because we've been there before, but it's only relevant if we have immunity. And right now, we just do not know anywhere near enough to say whether having had COVID-19 might give you immunity. So, you know, straight away, there's all these problems. They're promising something that it probably could never be able to uh, fulfil. And then we had problems when it came to actually procuring these tests. So in late March, uh, Boris Johnson said that we'd got 
uh, upcoming shipment of antibody tests on the way and they'd be a game changer. They'd just be like a pregnancy test. Of course, maybe not familiar with the fact that, you know, pregnancy tests don't work on blood samples, uh, but fine, we'll kind of gloss past that. Um, these tests were coming as 2 million tests ordered from China. What became clear very, very quickly um, even though we were asked to pay around £16 million up front for these tests, an analysis by uh, a lab at the University of Oxford uh, revealed that these tests were actually completely inaccurate, so they were almost no use at all. So you had this fiasco with these kind of Chinese tests and the government, uh, members of the civil service were left basically asking for money back. By May, the UK had procured a much better test, so these were from Roche and Abbott, but it seems they weren't really sure the best way to use these tests. So remember, the government had been saying, we need loads of tests, we're going to test loads of people, um, could be important for immunity passports, not really sure about the immunity thing, uh, let's worry about that later. In the meantime, something else had been going on, and that was that the government's self-imposed testing target of 200,000 coronavirus tests per day. Later, they said, actually, that refers to testing capacity, not actual tests performed per day, was looming just at the time as we were getting these antibody tests. So what happened is that there's loads and loads of frantic emails from staff in NHS England to um, hospitals and to uh, basically saying, test all of your staff now, test as, you know, as many of your patients as you can. In fact, even if your patient doesn't need a COVID-19 uh, antibody test, but you kind of have their blood sample, test their blood sample as well. Let's just find out who'd had it. And so... And it was only by introducing the capacity for that test that the government actually ended up uh, reaching its 200,000 target. So what we had is a slightly weird situation where we had been promised antibody tests all along and we were kind of implied they were useful on an individual level. But when it came down to it, when they were released, they were almost, they were very, very quickly rushed through, at, you know, almost to meet these kind of self-imposed testing targets, it seemed like no one said, hmm, what's the best way to use these antibody tests at a much earlier stage? So what's the moral of this whole fiasco? And is there any use today of me doing an antibody test if I thought I might have had COVID or is it still just kind of pointless? Yeah, I think on that last question, is there any point you taking one? Depends how curious you are. You know, if you really want to know, um, did I have it? Uh, you know, I, yeah, I can see there's a real natural human curiosity to that. You could take a test if you want to pay 250 quid and go to a you know private London clinic to get it done. You can do that. That is all you can expect to get from that, right? It won't tell you, can I get it again? It won't tell me how protected am I? It won't tell me in a year if I'm infected with, um, uh, you know, the virus, you know, will I get it again? Because the thing is, is we just don't know any of those things. So if you were looking to make any behavioural decisions based on the test, I'd say don't worry about having them. I think that, that, I think that, you know, going back to this idea of like, you know, what's the moral of the story? Like we made all these mistakes and so what have we actually learned from it? I think the problem is, is that actually the reason why antibody tests came up is because they kind of are useful, right? So antibody tests are why we know, for instance, that by late April, around 17.5% of people in London had had COVID-19. And we knew that, you know, much fewer people, I think it's around between 5 and 7% of people in the UK more generally had had COVID-19 as well. And that's really, really important for understanding how much inbuilt immunity there is in certain areas, but also finding out about the extent of the disease. Now, the problem is, is when the government was talking about this in the early days, the tests were very much framed as a 
having an individual benefit, you know, you know if you've got it. And to an extent, the whole lesson of the coronavirus um, epidemic is a lot of the things you do aren't really for your benefit. If you wear a face mask, that's kind of not for your own health benefit, right? It's to protect everyone else. If you have a test and you need to self-isolate, well, you know, you may well you may well not want to stay in your flat. It's probably not going to do you any good, but it's going to help everyone else. And the same thing is true about antibody tests. Really useful to know how much uh, inbuilt immunity is in the population and where the virus is spread, but it's not that useful for individuals at all. So I think the lesson, if you like, is you need to be really, really precise about what these health um these diagnostic tests and also health interventions do. Now, I suspect that if you're looking around and you're seeing, we talked about this last week, not many people wearing um, face masks, possibly because they think, well, it doesn't really protect me. What's the point? It suggests that we're not really learning those lessons that in a pandemic, a lot of the things that you do are actually for the benefit of everyone and have very little benefit to the individual. So I'm, I'm kind of... I think the lesson is we're still making these mistakes, um, but it kind of, you know, it highlights this whole kind of dichotomy of how we actually think about pandemics, I think. People are bad, both powerful people and ordinary people, perhaps. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Did you order or take an antibody test either early in the pandemic or more recently? And if you did do one, why did you do it? Let us know. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Um, an abrupt change of direction now Amit you're going to talk to us about eating hot dogs really quickly I love an abrupt change of direction yes this combines my two favorite things fast food and sports um sports back uh, behind closed doors as you'll have noticed but it's not just football cricket and formula one uh this Saturday July the 4th was the annual Nathan's hot dog eating contest on Coney Island in New York uh Nathan's the Nathan's hot dog eating contest is the world's premier competitive eating event it is like the Super Bowl of eating hot dogs as quickly as possible um, the winner of the contest was 36-year-old Joey Chestnut. He is probably the greatest competitive eater of all time. He is the Michael Jordan of eating hot dogs, or you know the Tom Brady of eating hot dogs, if you want to keep the Super Bowl analogy going. Um, he has won 13 of the last 14 hot dog eating contests, and on Saturday he won again, picking up the mustard belt, uh, a $10,000 prize, and setting a new world record of 75 hot dogs in 10 minutes, which is one hot dog every eight seconds. That is Sausage absolutely and bun. And bun. The condiments? Uh, condiments are optional. Most uh, competitive eaters, most pros don't uh, fill up on condiments. Good to know. Uh, pro tip. So why are we talking about this? I mean, it's impressive, but ultimately pointless. Um, partly because I talk to this about everyone that I come into contact with at some point. So you're just the latest in a very long line of uh, people. Um, I, I think it's really interesting because it's a really interesting example of the kind of science behind sporting success um people normally talk about kind of roger federer or lionel messi as these kind of examples of great athletes with this innate aptitude for their sport but actually uh success is kind of about a combination of factors um all great athletes you know whether they're footballers or, or competitive eaters have this kind of unique mixture of the right circumstances that enable them to get lots of practice from a young age uh, and develop the right technique combined with the kind of right mentality and then certain kind of genetic advantages so for Lionel Messi, a genetic advantage might be kind of a low centre of gravity that allows him to turn really quickly. For Michael Jordan, it's his unnaturally big hands. And with Jerry Chestnut, it's his unnaturally flexible stomach. So let me kind of get this straight. No one is born being able to just 
guzzle down dozens and dozens of hot dogs. It's not like, you know, Joey Chestnut is all stomach, right? Is, is, there, is, there, a, is there a physical thing going on here? Uh, so there might be actually, yeah. So um, the the human stomach uh, is roughly the size of two fists uh, placed next to each other, one vertical, one horizontal. So that doesn't really change a lot between people. There's no one that's born with like an unnaturally large uh, stomach. Um, this is according to David Metz, a gastroenterologist uh, who we spoke to for this piece. Um, but there are some some speed eaters seem to have different um, biology to other people. So they don't seem to end up with this kind of satiety reflex that most people have. So that's when the wiring of the lining of the stomach tells the brain that you're full and to stop eating. Uh, speed eaters either don't feel that or they can kind of just power through it. Um, in 2007, uh, Metz uh, co-authored a study that used x-rays to uh, basically look at whether world-class speed eaters in their gastrointestinal tracts behaved differently to uh, the average people. And they found that the stomach of the competitive eater was able to form, and this is a quote, an enormous flaccid sac, which was capable of housing endless food. Um, and then after the stomach was full, the food kind of piled up in the esophagus as well, when that could be stretched out over time. So it's this kind of, they, they have this ability to effectively stretch their stomach, uh, which is maybe partly genetic, but it can also be trained as well. So how does one train to eat a lot of hot dogs aside from just practicing eating a lot of hot dogs? Or maybe he doesn't. Maybe he eats no hot dogs until the big day. I don't know. Yeah, he's like he's like desperate for a hot dog by the time the competition rolls around. Um, yeah, so um, the, the training method is actually really interesting. So he kind of takes advantage, I guess, of this, uh, this ability he has uh, genetically or biologically and kind of expands on it. So he, he has he does practice contests uh, where he tries to push himself a little bit further each time and then he has recovery periods. Uh, so we spoke to him for this piece and um, he, he told us that he kind of films himself, uh, you know, doing these practice contests and then kind of assesses them, the videos to kind of try and look for holes in his technique in the same way that like a football coach might, you know, analyse the performance of a team and come up with pointers and things like that. So if he if he notices that he's chewing too slowly, he takes smaller bites. Or if he notices that his jaw is getting tired, he tears up the food with his hands the next time around to kind of help the process along. It's like he attacks this thing like really aggressively, like... Uh, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's kind of amazing. And, and he attacks it with the same kind of science and the same kind of, you know, uh, I guess, diligence that you would expect from like a, a, a professional sports team. Um, he also has like a much thicker set neck than most of the other eaters on the stages that, that he competes against. His nickname is Jaws. And that's because he trains his neck to be stronger. So he works the muscles in his, his jaws. Um, he has an exercise where he puts a gum guard on uh, and attaches it to a bag full of weights and moves his head back and forth to strengthening his neck muscles. Um, and that kind of gets a lot of blood flowing through his carotid arteries, which kind of help um, carry blood to the neck and kind of supply those muscles. Um, and this kind of helps in the contest, it helps him eat the food quickly um, and kind of get it through his system quickly so he doesn't um, get nauseous or choke on the food as he's eating it so quickly. Um, and then in the days before an event, he fasts uh, for a couple of days to, to really empty his stomach. So disgusting, I mean... but also fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm a little bit worried about this having a gum guard and then kind of swinging your head back and forth. Like, I'm a bit worried about his teeth, to be honest. But so so he's put loads of training in, you know, the days before. So I've got that. He's prepared. He's come to this with years of, you know, years of expertise. You know, on the day, is there a bit of inspiration? Is there, you know, is there passion? Is it, you know, does he just kind of, you know, go with the flow? Or does he have a kind of strict methodology? Is he kind of, is he scientific right down to the event itself? 
Yeah, so there's like there's a, there's a technique and it's kind of like a learned skill, like you know, uh, a tennis serve or being able to control a ball. Like it's in its. I think this is what a lot of people underestimate about sport generally is that it's not about talent; it's about kind of uh, neuroscience and it's about kind of uh, training your brain and your body to kind of perform this skill. Uh, in this case, the skill is obviously cramming as many hot dogs down your throat as possible in in, in ten minutes. Um, so he uses this kind of technique that a lot of competitive eaters use. Uh, where instead of eating kind of assembled hot dogs, you split them into sausage and bun and you eat them separately, um, which apparently makes it easier to eat them more quickly. So he eats two sausages at a time and then switches to eating two buns at a time and kind of um, basically shoves them into his mouth with one hand. While, um, and he also dips the buns in water to make them easier to digest, which is another fairly common tactic. Um, he uh, stands up during competitions, uh, which creates more room. And he has this technique, which is kind of unique of... Um, kind of shifting his body and like snaking it is the way it was described to to help the food move down um, into his stomach. Um, so these are techniques that he's kind of developed through kind of years of trial and error. So he's been doing competitive eating since he was 21, which is like 15 years of, of practice at these skills. Um, and then on top of that, it's not just kind of the, the, the developing the technique and, you know, having a big stomach. It's also the kind of ability to perform under pressure. You know, there's a lot on the line here, not least you know, your reputation as the world's greatest competitive eater. So normally there's like a baying crowd and things like that. Um, this year was a bit different because of uh, coronavirus. So there was no crowd. And uh, he, he said he was looking, he said he was a little bit worried about kind of the primal, uh, being able to hear the primal sounds being made by the by his competitors uh, without the crowd, which must've made it more difficult. So um, in summary, uh, to be a great hot dog eating champion, you need a mixture of deliberate practice, technique and mental strength. Thank you very much, Amit. That is truly one of the most remarkable and disgusting stories we've had on the podcast and on Wired UK for quite some time, uh, which is an achievement. So there we go. Um, depending on your point of view, that story will have either restored your fading faith in humanity or completely destroyed it. Do go and watch the video. Um, it's it's quite something. Uh, we'll move on. Uh, do email in as well if you have any uh, thoughts on eating hot dogs really quickly. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Amit will answer all of your questions, I'm sure. Our third and final story this week is a return to sanity and a return to train travel, Vicky. Yeah, remember that. Remember trains. Remember international travel taking trains across borders. Uh, yeah, so I actually reported this story before coronavirus shut everything down, uh, but we held it back a bit because it seemed a bit silly to talk about it when, you know, travel suddenly became an alien concept to us all. But now things are opening up a little bit and maybe people are starting to think about traveling once again sometime in the future. Um, how do you guys tend to travel in Europe in particular, there is a push for more train travel at the moment, which is mainly for environmental reasons. Obviously, everyone knows that taking a flight is incredibly bad for the environment and with increasing uh, urgency of climate change, taking trains instead is a really good alternative option. But what I wanted to explore was the booking process. So basically that first bit of traveling where you're actually planning and organizing your journey and buying your tickets. Booking international train travel isn't always as easy as you might think. This is a very, very fair point. I remember when um, you were researching this story and part of the, 
the story that the Vicky, the journey that Vicky goes on is, is literal. You got on a train to do the reporting and working out how you get from one country to another when you book a flight is super easy. But doing it, unless you take a Eurostar or, or a train maybe starting in Germany, which has quite a good booking system, it's really, really complicated. Um, so, for example, I have a couple of mates who live in Amsterdam and you can really easily take the Eurostar straight from London to Amsterdam. It's way easier than, than, than flying. So I can see how people would switch up flying for taking the train. It's a nice experience. It's easy. You don't have to go miles out of a city. But whenever I've tried to do more complicated train journeys, you just get lost in this mess of pdfs and different timetables and different languages and google doesn't understand it and none of the railway booking sites talk to each other and it feels very much like traveling back in time which is kind of like it's the romance of the railways but kind of not the point if they're to replace flying right exactly james and it's a very similar experience that i had that made me want to do this story it's just it, it's kind of not what we expect it to be these days like if you think of booking a flight it is just so easy. You can go to any flight booking website, whichever one you prefer. You type in your starting point, your destination. It gives you all your options, all the prices, all the timetables. Even if your trip includes stopovers, even if it has multiple connections, even if those flights are operated by different companies, it's just all standardized. You know exactly what you're getting. You get your boarding card. You know what your boarding card says, even if you know, you're booking in a foreign country with a different language. You just know how things work. And when you get to the airport, you know exactly what to expect. But as you highlight, James, it's just not always the same with trains. In principle, it should be easy to travel at least around mainland Europe because, you know, there's lots of countries all together, close together. But it's just not always the case. And you do find yourself kind of looking at different websites and different languages, different currencies, and even smaller practical points like classes of travel. So if you want to get a standard class or a first class ticket, those are all different in different countries. The rules are different, like whether you could take a dog with you or whether you have to pay extra for luggage. Um, the tickets are different. On some services, you have to reserve a seat. On others, you don't. One ticket might cover you for your whole journey. In some places, if you have changes, you need a separate ticket for each leg it's all a bit of a mess really um and so it can get really confusing yeah i had a similar experience i mean i was only going as far as cologne but you have to obviously you change from the eurostar to uh, uh you know a, a train that goes between belgium and uh germany and it's really confusing because no one really signposts them it's you're changing from a kind of an international system to a more local system and um, there's no uniformity but I guess it, it shouldn't have to be like this because, especially in Europe, every single country more or less has uh, pretty advanced rail systems. We all know how to run trains. The, the tracks are more or less connected up. So what is actually going wrong? Because we know from countries like America, you can still do rail systems across big places. So it's not a problem of scale or geography then. No, it's more a historical thing, really. Essentially, there's no standardization. Basically, historically, each country made its own rail system for its own market. Um, and it was very sort of nationalized and still is largely. Um, so when you try to go from one country system to another, things can change. Um, so if we do the comparison with flights again, air travel has what's called a GDS, a global distribution system. Uh, there's a few companies that, that have these and they essentially um, share the availability and prices across all operators. So if you're a travel agent um, or, you know, an online travel 
booking agent, um, you can get access to these systems and you suddenly have all that information right in front of you, regardless of, of what country it is. Um, and there's lots of other standardizations as well, things like um, what's called the IATA codes, which is the, the three letter code for each airport. So you always know, you know, LAX is LA, LHR is London Heathrow, uh, whatever language you're speaking, you, you can tell which airport is which. That's not the same with train stations. They can have different names in translation. Anyway, that's I'm, <laughs> there's, there's many kind of um, tangents I can go on here. But yeah, so the European Commissioner for Transport, I spoke to Adina Valeon. Um, and she's really pushing to kind of make train operators share data more in order to kind of increase competition, let other people get into this ticket booking space and kind of make a service that is better for consumers. Uh, the commission proposed to make 2021 the European Year of Rail. And it is a really central thing that they need to do if they want to meet their green targets. So they're trying to encourage uh, different countries, sort of national operators to just open up a bit and get some form of standardization. So, I mean, while we're waiting for that to happen, is there a way around kind of booking a, a train to, I don't know, Prague or Budapest right now where we can kind of get help and kind of make the process a bit easier? There are, there are several ways. And um, the first I'd like to mention, because uh, he's a legend in my eyes, uh, a guy called the man in seat 61. Uh, real name Mark Smith. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of him, but if ever you've tried to take a train travel any distance, you may have ended up on his blog um, because it's really incredible. He's been running it for a long time now. And um, it's basically his, he just explains how to take any train to from one country to any other country. Um, and he'll write out the journey, what you have to do, all the details, uh, he'll link you to the timetables. He doesn't sell tickets, but he'll he'll show you the best place to buy them. Um, and basically demystifying this complex web of rail interactions. It started as sort of a passion project for him uh, when he was sort of, oh, I want to learn some HTML. I'll make a website. What should it be? I really like train travel. Let's do this. Um, and it's now sort of his full-time occupation. Uh, and he's just constantly updating this site. Uh, so if you <laughs> if you need to travel anywhere, I would really recommend it. Um, but that is just the work of one man, literally kind of looking at timetables, refreshing everything. He gets lots of emails from travelers who will update his information uh, if they've you know been traveling somewhere and realize that one of his pages might be out of date. Uh, so it's really a lot of sort of almost detective work. Uh, from him to make sure that he's giving accurate information to people. There are also companies that are trying to make it possible to book trains in a similar way to flights. So, you know, you can kind of just put in your destination and you can book multiple trains uh, in one go. Uh, so Trainline, you might have heard of, and Rail Europe, those are two of the biggest. And they essentially make deals with the individual train operators to get access to their data so they can then link it into their system and sell tickets um, from those different operators. And obviously they, they take a fee when they do that. But even when they make those deals and get the access to that data, it's often, again, not standardized at all. So they have to do a lot of work to hook that API into their systems. And often it doesn't include real-time data. So things like delays or cancellations, that's a whole other step um, in this sort of journey to make train ticket booking a bit more um, reasonable. 
And the man in C61 is such a brilliant example of a very human solution to a very, very tricky technical problem. The, the website's amazing. I follow the guy on Twitter. I've used his service, if you like, for years. But it really is a bloke hand-punching in timetable details into a website and other train enthusiasts traveling the world and reporting back from sort of deepest, darkest Mongolia about the situation of this railway station and this timetable and this train that used to run on a Tuesday but now runs on a Thursday. So it's it's very manual. And as you said, with the, the whole mission of the European Commission for Transport trying to get companies to share their data, the data is there, but it's stored in all sorts of weird and wonderful formats. So this is a tech problem. If, if we want to solve this properly, we have to solve the technical issue behind all of this. So is anyone tackling that part of the problem rather than trying to work around it? Yeah, so if you can get access to that data, then you can start, you know, building things with it, which is obviously what, what Trainline and Rail Europe are doing. Um, and I also visited Omeo, uh, which kind of wants to go a step further. So this is a startup based in Berlin. Um, and uh, they also, it, it acquired Rome to Rio uh, a while ago. If you're a kind of frequent traveler, you might you might have heard of that site as well. Um, but basically, Omeo, rather than just letting you book trains, it wants to go even further and let you book what it calls multimodal journeys. So the idea is that in one booking, you could book a train, a flight, another train, maybe even an Uber to your hotel or something at the end, all in one go. Omeo would do all the hard work on the back end and you'd just end up with the right tickets that you needed and can get on with your journey. You don't have to like visit six different websites figure out all the timetables yourself and, and how to make the connections. At the moment, you know, you've, it's still got that problem of, of, of getting the data right and everything. Um, but, you know, another advantage to this is it allows you to compare options against each other. So if you go to the Omeo site now or on the app, you can see, um, you know, where there's an option for either a flight or a train. You could compare the difference in time or price, things like that. Um, so it's kind of trying to bring this all into one platform. But, you know, again, that it really is dependent on having that data available. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the point about comparison is really, really valid because... At the moment, if I want to go to, you know, wherever, somewhere in Italy, I instantly think of planes. I don't even think about checking the uh, rail situation because even if, you know, there are loads of trains that connected, well, no one would be able to tell me that. So I'd, I'd never even know if there was actually a way of getting there that could cost 20 euros less, but maybe it takes two hours more because there's not really this like for like comparison. What would we have to get right to get in that circumstances who do we have to get kind of chatting to each other because like you said this is all a problem of matching up all these different puzzle pieces in different languages and in different institutions in you know different forms of payment but how do you even start to approach that bit of a mess of a puzzle yeah so i mean it all kind of comes to this issue of of, of a lack of standardization and um, not just on that you know, pure data of, you know, what are the timetables? When do you run trains? When, uh, you know, are they delayed and things like that? Um, which Omeo and other tra travel companies are sort of lobbying the EU to try and get them to standardize more what, what people have to provide and open up competition. Uh, there's also issues, for example, with passenger rights. So these also aren't necessarily standardized. Um, you know, if you fly, you kind of know what you're entitled to in terms of delays or, or cancelled flights, that sort of thing. Uh, but in different European countries, it, it might vary. And if you were to book 
you know, this dream of a multimodal trip with loads of different legs through different operators, that raises a really big issue there. Because, you know, what if your first train is late and as a result, you miss your next connection and then you miss all the others? Are you entitled to a refund because one operator was delayed? You know, if it's then a different operator that you missed, it, it all gets a bit messy. Um, you know, who's responsible for that? What are your rights as a passenger? And so that's something that has to kind of be figured out. And if you're on train Twitter, which I proudly am, you'll see this playing out in the wild. So there's there's a bunch of um, uh, train enthusiasts, rather than railway enthusiasts, I'm sure there's railway enthusiasts Twitter as well, but you'll have people who are taking journeys and they'll get stuck. So their, their train into a German port city will be delayed and they were due to pick up a connecting train, but then train to train twitter will jump on to help out and point out that there's actually an overnight ferry that takes them to this part of sweden that allows them to get to wherever they need to be in time for their lunchtime meeting by taking like ferry then a bus then a train but the internet just doesn't know that it's kind of down to this weird passion project um and i guess what everyone's now grappling with off the back of well not even off the back of we're still in the middle of it in in the middle of this pandemic is Maybe you don't want to get on a plane. Maybe for environmental reasons, you don't want to get on a plane either. So are more people going to take the train? Are, are people even planning to travel at the moment? Vicky, I know when when you wrote this piece, um, the idea was that people would, would read it and make their, their travel plans with a new <laughs> frame of mind. But are, are people even going on journeys? Yeah, I mean, I think we'll still have to see what what plays out with the coronavirus situation. I don't think there's, you know, I think obviously the travel industry has been hit by that very hard and presumably will be for for the rest of the year at least. Um, But I think, yeah, before we had this virus to contend with, um, I very much thought, you know, this is the year we've had Greta Thunberg. We're all so aware of climate change. We know what we need to do. Everyone, I think, is kind of aware of their individual responsibility in this this is a time to kind of encourage people to, to travel more by train. And I, I sort of decide myself, like, yeah, I'm going to, wherever possible, not fly and, and take the train instead. I think there is a, an appetite for train travel. I mean, personally, I think it is so much more enjoyable <laughs> to sit on a train than, you know, to deal with an airport and, and, and go on a plane. Um, and, you know, maybe if it was just a little bit easier, that, that might help people come around. Um, I mean, I have to say my my own journey for this particular story was was quite disastrous. <laughs> um, it was actually when Storm Kiara was uh, hitting uh, across Europe. And so I ended up arriving 15 hours later than scheduled, I think it was, um, because of uh, a cancel cancellation due to the storm and then, uh, you know, fallen power lines and, and all this. Uh, but I still... <laughs> even though it was, uh, you know, by all accounts, uh, a terrible journey. Um, You know, I could sit there, relax, read my book, go to the dining car, um, do some work on the on the Wi-Fi. Um, And it felt a lot less stressful than if a flight had been cancelled. And I suddenly found myself stranded in an airport, you know, which is usually sort of in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, absolutely. I know we've got lots of listeners all over Europe and all around the world, in fact. So get in touch as the world starts to open up again and we think about going on holiday or traveling in general. Are you going to be taking the train? What are 
the benefits of it for you. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Get in touch with us on that or anything else that we've talked about on the show this week. We've got a few of your emails to read out to finish the show off. Daniel writes in with an email uh, titled Parakeet Watch. This one's sort of for you, Amit. He says that he loves the show and thanks us as thanks us for keeping it going through lockdown he's a hairdresser so has returned to work this week and he's thinking of all the office workers who will be working from home for the foreseeable he writes that in lieu of Amit's magpie news he wanted to let us know that he has a tree full of parakeets keeping him company while he has his morning tea and listens to the show he's in south london and it's nice to think that there are these tropical birds that are making uh, home even though and um, they've only been here for a short while it is a weird thing about uh, South London. It is overrun in a, in a way with parakeets. Um, there are various theories as to where they came from. Anyway, thank you very much for your email, Daniel. Amit, you've got another one. Yes, um, Arnold has written in to say that he is a huge fan of the show and has been listening every week for a while now. Um, he has an update on the situation in California. He lives in San Jose and he says that while his life doesn't feel anywhere near as uh, as it used to, he has a ton of uh, anywhere near as you know normal as it used to he says he has a ton of friends and family kind of pretending it is you know, we've seen the united states kind of start to open up again even as the number of cases continues to rise um and without as as uh, arnold says any evidence kind of suggesting that it's safe to do so um however he says he's still continuing to work from home he's avoiding indoor shopping as much as possible and instead of going to the gym he's kind of working out with hikes and biking and other outdoor activities. Um, he has gone to a few restaurants, uh, you know, eating outdoors when things are slow and kind of gone on trips to places where you can be isolated. So rather than staying in a hotel, you know, staying in like a rented cabin or something like that. Um, he says he doesn't see his patterns changing much from this until there is a vaccine available. And he doesn't understand those who have begun to pretend that it's not happening anymore. Um, I think that's a really interesting point. I think, you know, uh, this far into the crisis, I think we're all feeling a bit fatigued and I think the news cycle has done that thing that it always kind of does when things aren't kind of short and sharp of kind of starting to maybe turn its attention away slightly from this kind of unfolding crisis in this this global pandemic um I think it's been really I mean we'd, we'd be really interested to hear I think you know what the situation is like in other areas there seems to be like a wide range of places so you know we've seen New Zealand kind of opening up almost fully whereas here in the UK you know there's different rules in you know each of the four different countries but it'd be really interesting to hear where you know what things are like where you are podcast at wired.co.uk absolutely do get in touch one last email in the inbox this week matt reynolds that's right so dara writes in because we were talking about uh, public transport and attitudes to wearing masks so dara writes in ireland and specifically dublin uh, on the buses some drivers now carry extra masks they're giving them out to any passengers who happen not to have a mask and asking passengers to wear them and if they don't have them if passengers don't have a mask they refuse you entry onto the bus so dara continues saying trains and trams are harder but there are inspectors and security enforcing the rule so it just goes to show that in countries where you know they pull a little bit of mask shaming into practice that you can get people uh wearing more masks uh, every day even though we're not necessarily seeing a whole bunch of that uh in england outside of public transport Thanks so much to everyone who wrote into the show this week. Podcast at wired.co.uk. If there's anything on your mind, we do love hearing from you and we'll endeavour to read out a selection of your emails at the end of each and every show. That's it for this week. Thank you, as always, for listening. 
Stay safe. Have a wonderful week. And we'll see you again next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.